And uh, before we dive into the message this morning, we'd like to, first of all, honor the Lord by a reading of Scripture. And so go ahead and take your Bibles out or turn them on and turn over to Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. In fact, it's on the back of the bulletin that you received when you came in. We're going to be looking at Psalm 23 this morning. David writes this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, you know my heart. I'm so addicted to the approval of men. I let things so easily insert themselves between me and you, my walk with you, my worship of you. I am ineffective and harmful even if I were to preach apart from the anointing of your Holy Spirit and apart from a deep experiential grasp of your love in my heart. And so this morning, Lord, I pray for the preacher and also for the people, Lord, that as John 7 talks about, you would provide us rivers of living water that would spring forth from inside of us. This time is way too important to have anything less than a word from you. We have taken the time out of our schedules to come here So may this not be just data, an intellectual download. May this be worship, Lord. Worship that changes us to our very core. Worship that causes us to leave here and have a pep rally on the way home so that when that lady is jogging on the sidewalk, we're not even tempted to look over because we're so secure in Jesus, we just want to worship and have communion with you. We don't want to be tempted this week, Lord, to fudge the records at our job to gossip about people, Lord, and to tear them down. To give our minds and hearts to things that we ought not to. To be driven by greed and materialism and to let things that are lower than you usurp your place in our hearts. We don't want to be that way, Lord. We want this to be a transformative time where we come and we're re-reminded that it is finished. It's paid in full. We need that, Lord. I need that. Confessing that we are, we're too easily entertained by the things of this world. And so may this not be a time of entertainment, Lord, but a time where you take these five loaves and two fish of preparation and make it it a feast, Lord. Make it a feast. We pray even now, Lord, that you would send the Spirit of your Son into our hearts. And that he would fill this place. And that he would spill out and fill this neighborhood and this city with your glory. 
Thank you for your love for us, Lord, even more fickle. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, as I introduced myself at the beginning, my name is Jeff Eckert, and I'm the teaching pastor over at a church called Grace Life Beachside. It's actually the second church that um, we've planted with the Grace, Grace Life name. And um, Tommy and I, we, we planted this church with about five or six other couples in early 2015. And um, we had never planted a church before, and so we, we made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> as you'd expect. We came from a very traditional type church uh, background, and so planting a church was brand new to us, and um, I probably made more mistakes than Tommy did, so just to kind of bail him out because he's not here this morning. But I remember one instance that really kind of still haunts me to this day. There was a young couple that was coming to our church when we first launched. They were there since the first Sunday, and they sat pretty much on the front row. Weren't really churchgoers. Um, hadn't really been in church in years. Um, let's call them Bill and Sally. Bill used to go to church, but he was de-churched. He no longer went to church, and his family no longer went to church. But when we planted Grace Life Deltona, they started coming. So Bill started coming, Sally, his girlfriend, started coming, and Bill's family started coming, and they really enjoyed it. In fact, they were the first home group over here in the Deltona area. They were like on the front lines of helping this church grow, and they were really enjoying hearing about Jesus every single Sunday. And uh, they were having a great time. But then it all blew up overnight. And it blew up overnight because of me and the way that I view the church, or I viewed the church at that time. Because it came to my attention that Bill and Sally were living together. And so as soon as I heard that, you know, I called Bill up and I said, hey man, let's have coffee like today. Let's have coffee. Let's talk this through. And so we did. We had coffee. And for like two hours, like, I opened the Bible up and, and I went through and showed him all the verses that talk about, you know, no sex before marriage. And I explained to him, you know, you, you, you ought not to have moved in with your girlfriend and you ought not to be living this way. And he explained to me very kindly that, hey, listen, we're just living together. We're not sleeping together, right? Which I thought, sure, yeah, right, okay. So I shifted gears, though, because I'm called to believe the best of all people. So I kind of, I shuffled the deck and I started talking about how we're called to flee every appearance of evil. And, you know, the neighbors are watching and your testimony's on the line. They're going to see your car parked in the parking lot here. And they're going to see your car parked out her house all night over there. And so I shifted gears and I immediately started exhorting him in that way. And I said, you need to move out of her house tonight. You need to leave her house tonight. Well, a couple days later, Bill's mom called me, and uh, she's very upset with me. And she said, how, how in the world are you going to counsel my son, who's just started coming to church, to abandon this young lady, to pay all the bills by herself, she ain't got no family, how are you going to counsel him to do the Christian thing by leaving her high and dry? And she was very upset. And, you know, back in those days, my personal rule of communication was, I match your intensity. Anyone else communicate this way? So like basically, if you call me and you're Mother Teresa, I'm very sweet and gracious. But if you call me and you get all Conor McGregor, I, I'm going to light you up. That's just the way that I, you know. So if you call me and you take it to the next level, I, I'm going to put you on blast. And that's what I did. I just basically let her have it back. And I said, the reason that you're, you know, so upset with me is because you also lived with your boyfriend, your husband now, before you were married. And you're just perpetuating your idolatrous lifestyle on your kids. And I basically, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what happened next. The whole situation blew up. The whole thing blew up. The whole family left our church, broke off all communication. And I remember the last thing that Bill's mom said to me was this. Never forget. She said, you know, your church is called Grace Life, but you guys aren't very gracious over there at all. 
Now at the time, if you would have asked me, what happened to Bill and Sally? I would have told you, everybody who followed Jesus didn't stick around, and everyone needs to count the cost. That would have been my response to you. Because I emphatically thought that I was doing God's work in God's way. That is what I thought at the time. And the reason I was so zealous and so fired up for the purity of the church is because I naturally thought the purpose of the church was to separate from sinners. You know, I, I thought my calling, basically, as a Christian pastor was to thin the herd by basically excommunicating and pushing out everybody except for the most devoted and the most committed to Jesus Christ. That was my natural reasoning about the whole thing. Basically, I saw the mission field as the enemy. It was like an us versus them mentality. And so even though Bill and Sally hadn't been in church that long, and this was like new to them, this whole concept of not living together, I assumed that overnight they needed to change their entire worldview after one coffee with me. Now, since that time, as you can tell by, by the introduction to the sermon, God has since like changed my thinking because he has revealed to me that the way I handled that situation was more in line with the Pharisees than with Jesus Christ. And if you're new to church, you know, the, the Pharisees, they were the people that Jesus would have called pastor when he was walking the earth 2,000 years ago. When he went to church... The Pharisees were his pastors, the people's pastors. And the word Pharisee, it's from the Hebrew word parush, and it literally means separated one. The separated ones. The Pharisees separated themselves from everything, you know, sin, sinners, MTV, and Teletubbies even, you know, especially purple Teletubbies, Tinky Winky was a no-go, you know, for you Jerry Falwell fans. Um, the, these were the Pharisees. They separated themselves from anything that was sinful at all. And I know today, if you call someone a Pharisee, it's like a sanctified curse word. They want to fight you in the parking lot. But 2,000 years ago, if you call someone a Pharisee, that was a compliment. That was basically saying, hey, you're a Pharisee. You're a devoted follower of God. Before there was WWJD bracelets, there was WWCD. What would Caiaphas do, the high priest? What would he do? I want to do life like Caiaphas does. So when you see the word Pharisee in your Bible, don't think snob. Think devoted follower of God. Think this person has never seen even a PG-13 movie. That's what you should read when you read the word Pharisee in your Bible because these people took following God extremely seriously. And they were also very concerned that everybody else was towing the line when it came to following God. And the Pharisees, they were called the separated ones because they separated from anything sinful at all. In fact, there's an early Jewish document called the Talmud. And it says this, it says, A Pharisee and an unbeliever must never even eat a meal together lest it lead to a sin. So the Pharisees were kind of the first guys that invented this whole concept of, you know, have you ever heard of the slippery slope concept? Have you heard of that before? Anybody here? Yeah. It's sort of like they said, don't go hanging around those people because if you hang around those people and share the gospel, pretty soon you'll be doing the things those people do. And the next thing you know, we won't be in church anymore. And the next thing you know, you got eight kids and you're living. You know, they had this slippery slope mentality that they introduced. And so they said, you know, you got to separate from sinners, you've got to be pure. But then this guy named Jesus comes along who claims to be the Messiah. And what's so crazy is this guy, Jesus, 
hangs around with the people that the Pharisees say aren't any good. This is the crazy part. Because the Pharisees couldn't make sense of it. This guy, you know, he does miracles and he never says a bad word or a bad thing or gossips or does anything wrong at all, but yet he hangs around with people that visit the Cash America Pond at 8 in the morning. He's hanging out with them later on that day. He's like, I just saw you, bro. You had a 10-speed up there. And that's how Jesus was. And so this confused the Pharisees. In fact, it confused them so much that in Mark chapter 2, they asked Jesus this, why, why, does, why do you hang around with tax collectors and sinners? Aren't we supposed to be separate? Aren't we supposed to be separate from such people? What's very interesting is this. Jesus doesn't defend them. He doesn't say, you know what, you guys got these people all wrong. They're not that bad. Why are you dogging on those people? He doesn't do that. In fact, he actually agrees with the Pharisees and he says this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus said this. He said, listen, if I wanted to hang out with holy people, I would have stayed in heaven. But the whole reason I came here was to hang around people who are sick, who need help, who need a physician. And that's the reason that I hang around the sick people of this world. And basically, beloved, I would say this, friends. The purpose of the church is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We are here for the sick people of this world. Can I get an amen this morning? I know this goes against the grain of our thinking, but we can never forget the mission statement of the church, which is Matthew 28, right? Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, and baptizing them, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you even to the end of the age. That is our calling. We are called to be reaching those who don't know Jesus Christ, the sick, quote-unquote. You know, and we love to say, you know, the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And yet so often we thin the herd and kick out everybody except for the most committed and the most holy. And that is absolutely crazy. I mean, think of it this way. Think of it this way. If you went to the local hospital here and you went to the front clerk and you're like, hey, how are things going? They're like, it's going rad, bro. We're doing so good here. We are really making a difference in this city. And you're like, cool. How many people you got at this hospital? And they're like, zero. Hold on a second. You ain't got no sick people in this hospital in the whole, every floor. There's no one. Nope, no one's here. You would think to yourself this, one of two things. Either A, they have eradicated sickness from all of West Volusia County, right? That's what you would think. Or B, this hospital has such a bad rap that sinners and sick people no longer come here. They tell the ambulance, having a heart attack, like, keep going, go to the other hospital. You know what I'm saying? That would be your view. Because if you're going to have a successful hospital, you're probably going to be be jam-packed full of sick people, right? Amen? Amen. So if you're going to be, follow the logic here, if you're going to be, a church that's making a difference in the world, if you're going into all the world and you're making disciples of all the nations and you're actually getting to the point where you're teaching them everything Jesus commanded, there actually should be some people in your church who are in process, right? You shouldn't walk into the church and everyone's got a gold star on, right? For perfect attendance and perfect marriage and perfect parenting and perfect... There should be some folks that are wrestling through the demands of Jesus Christ because Matthew 28 demands it. It demands it. 
And so who does the church exist for? Not the pure. The church exists for the unchurched. Our motto here at this church, if you're visiting, this is your first Sunday, this is our motto. Grace Life Church. Let's say it together. Where the insiders exist for the outside. You can say that together. It's not a cult or anything. It doesn't make me feel weird, right? It's cool. Ain't no cult up in here. So the goal of the church is not to separate from sinners, but to draw near to them and show them grace and hope. And listen, just so you don't leave here and get on Facebook and blog and... I ain't saying there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians. The Bible says when you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. You are a new creation and your life should be that of pursuing holiness if you're a Christian. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a difference. I'm not saying the church should be hip and cool and cast off rules and, you know, quote all these secular playboy mag. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. There should be a difference between Christian and non-Christian, okay? So I'm not saying that we should not pursue morality in the church. Here's what I'm saying, though. The church should be more than moral. Should be more than moral. That's not the goal down here. That's one of the goals. But only because 1 Peter says that actually backs up your testimony, bro, that you're trying to live a holy life. People are like, I should listen to that guy. He actually tries to follow God and, and, and obey God. Check this out. This is what David Platt said. Platt said this, the goal is not to disinfect Christians and separate them from the world, but to disciple them, send them back on out into the world. Disinfecting Christians involves isolating them and teaching them to be good. Discipling Christians involves propelling Christians into the world to risk their lives for the sake of others. That's why we're here. The church exists for the unchurched. The insiders exist for the outsiders. Now, here's the deal. That was, all, that was all introduction, okay? I won't go super long, I promise. But I had to get that off my chest because I had to kind of like set the trajectory for this morning because what I really want to talk about this morning is if that's the case, if the church exists for the unchurched, if we're called to reach the world, here's the main question. What should the church feel and look like? What should be the culture? It's a big word this morning, culture. What should the culture of the church feel like? Just a really simple definition of culture is this. Culture is the voice that's talking to you when no one's in the room talking to you. That's what culture is. How do I feel? What do I experience when I come into this place? What do I experience when I go to a home group? How should the people, the sick sheep of this world, when they come in here, how should they experience this place? I believe the answer is found in Psalm 23. And here's why. Psalm 23, a beautiful psalm, right? It reveals the shepherding heart of God. Psalm 23 is how God shepherds us. And here, here, here's, here's where I'm going with this. If Psalm 23 talks about how God shepherds us, then wouldn't it make sense that we would shepherd people the way God shepherds us? In other words, if our heart doesn't match Psalm 23 in the way that we shepherd people, especially people who are in process, then I don't think we're shepherding the world the way that God shepherds them. And since we are God's representatives on earth, we have a very high calling before us, friends. A very high calling. And so Psalm 23, I believe, one of the applications of this psalm is, this, this really lays out for us what a church should feel like what people should experience when they come in here. 
In fact, the first two verses lay it out beautifully. Check this out. Let's look at the first two verses again of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And He leads me beside still waters. This psalm is so encouraging. It reveals to us the heart of God. who He's a shepherd at His heart. A shepherd. And this should be our calling as well. And so from Psalm 23, I would attest to you this. There's, there's two main points I have this morning and then I'm out of your way, okay? When the sick sheep of this world, when they come in here, when people come in here, they should experience two main things, okay? Green pastures and still waters. That should be their experience. Green pastures and still waters. There's a man named Philip Keller. He wrote a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. The, guy, the guy's a real-life shepherd, okay? Not a preacher that, you know, found some things on Wikipedia. This guy really is a shepherd. He said this. He said, the strange thing about sheep is because they are so anxious and prone to worry, it's almost impossible for them to lie down unless they have these four things. Check this out. Sheep won't rest and lie down if they're afraid, if they have beef with other sheep, if they're bothered by flies or pests, or if they don't have adequate food. And friends, I would attest to you, verses 1 and 2 lay out all of those needs very clearly. If we give the six sheep of this world green pastures to feed on and still waters to lay beside, they're not going to want to leave when they come in here. They're going to come in here and they're going to say, I don't know how you did it, but you somehow pulled heaven down to earth and I don't want to leave. I can't leave. My soul is fed here and I can actually lay down and perhaps find some relief from the drama in my marriage, in my parenting, in my life, in my work situation. So in order for the sheep of this world to thrive, we need to model the shepherding heart of God the Father, and that means providing the people of this culture, in this city, green pastures and still waters. That's my prayer for this church and also for my church. And I've got two points this morning. I'm out your way, okay? We should provide the people of this world green pastures and still waters. So first of all, we need to be a church that provides green pastures it's basically sound teaching on. So this should be a place where basically we show people the beauty of God's law. That's one of our callings as a church. And so we're called to open the scripture up and take them through the Bible and show them how the commandments of God are actually for their good. Now this is very revolutionary because some people view the Bible as like algebra homework. It's a bunch of useless stuff in here that no longer applies to anybody. But you have to go in and read your Bible and learn it, even though it's never going to benefit you in the real world like algebra never did, right? That's what people think. But in reality, the Bible's law never goes out of void. Jesus said this. He said, every jot and tittle will pass away except for my word. He said, that, that jot and tittle, every jot and tittle in the Bible will never pass away. Every other word that's written in history will go by the wayside. But this, when you talk about the law of God, when you talk about the Bible and Ten Commandments and, and the 623 Old Testament, you talk about all the stuff in here, the principles, the concepts, the truths, you're talking about the fabric of reality of the world. In fact, I, I don't know if you follow Jordan Peterson. He's gaining a lot of notoriety lately. Really rad, rad guy. He's a clinical psychologist. Anyway, he said recently in an interview I heard, he said, you know, he's been doing, you know, uh, psychotherapy and therapy for like three decades. He said this. He said, I have never in my life met with a person who has gotten away with anything in their entire life. 
So often we think, you know, yeah, you do something wrong and you break a law over here, but you get away with it. Peterson said this. He said, it may take a few years, but if you look at someone's life, the reason they're coming to me is because either they, they've broken some law, or B, someone else has broken a law, it's affected them. That's the only reason he sees anybody at all. That's the reason he has a clinical practice. He's a clinician. And he said, nobody ever gets away with anything. And Peterson said this. He said, the reason the Ten Commandments were chiseled out in stone and the reason that people took them so soberly is because God is basically saying, listen, bro, you can't monkey with this. This is inflexible. This is the very fabric of the world. And if you go against this, there's going to be consequences. And the most beautiful and caring and kind and compassionate thing that we can do is to help people see how actually obeying God is for their good. It's not like a bad thing, you know? You know, it's the seventh commandment says, do not commit adultery, which means don't have sex outside of marriage, right? That's not written by some prudish God with a moo-moo on up in heaven that's saying, you know what? I want to give people a bunch of rules that are going to jack them up and take away their freedom to make their lives miserable. That's not God's intention at all. God says that because, you know what? God knows what divorce does to a family. The idea of sex, God's not against it. He invented it, remember? Read Song of Solomon if you're over 18 years of age, right? Sex was his idea. He invented it, right? But the reason that God commanded us, do not commit adultery, is because God knows broken families aren't fun. They're not fun. I mean, if you ever spent time with someone going through a divorce, you know this. And I, this a buddy of mine, went to seminary with him. Uh, you know, he came home from Sunday night church. His wife didn't go. She was sick. Came home. The whole house is cleaned out. Bank account's cleaned out. She's gone. There's a note on there. I, I don't love you anymore. I'm out of here. I'm gone. I went and crashed on that guy's couch for like a week. I have never in my... To this day, I still have never heard someone cry that way before. Like, almost, the person is basically dry heaving because they don't have any tears left to cry. When you think about the commandments of God, don't think of a God up there with a Napoleon complex saying, I can't wait to keep you under my thumb. Think of a God who says, I would rather spare you that. God loves us so much that he gives us the rule book of life, the Bible, basics instructions before leaving earth. That's what this is about. So there's a beauty and a majesty and something amazing, when you bring your life into conformity as best you can with God's law, there's a gentle little rain that falls upon your life. And so we have to teach people in this culture that, listen, the Bible, it's not here to jam you up. It's here to free you up. It's actually here to make your life beautiful. I like what Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said. He says, God has no other design upon us but to make us happy. That's his whole intention. That's the reason he gave you the book. I mean, my kids, you know, they're two, four, and six. And when they get some new toy and it's got an instruction manual, ain't nobody want to take 15 minutes and read through the instruction manual to put the kite together the right way. And so what happens is this person runs off with the yarn and they're wrapping that around a tree and this person runs over here with the nylon, you know what I'm saying? They've got that in the pool and they're using it as like a little boat. You're not using the kite the way it's intended because you didn't take time to look at the instructions, bro. You could have been having so much more fun saying, how in the world is that thing flying up there? But instead you took it and you used it in the way it was never intended to be used. And we are called to share with the sick sheep of this world the whole idea that, listen, bro, you want to get this book in you. You do. Because this book is actually going to make your life easier, I promise you. I promise you. It's going to make your life easier. Now, I know, that sounds totally foreign to us because we live in a culture where people think real freedom comes from breaking all the rules. 
Nobody thinks, hey, give me some rules. I want freedom. We always think, no, hey, I don't want any rules. I want freedom, so I'm going to break all the rules. That's indicative of our culture, isn't it? One person agrees, right? Sorry, you can laugh in church a little bit. You laugh everywhere else. You can laugh in here. I won't go tell no one. I'm going to tell Tommy, right? Seriously, though, we think breaking the rules is living. It's like some guy offers his buddy a cigarette. He says, hey, man, want to smoke? He's like, nah. He's like, I really shouldn't. And the guy's like, come on, bro, live a little. Smoke a ciggy. What's that guy implying? He's implying this. He's saying the way that you live is by breaking the rules. When, in fact, the Surgeon General has told us when you break the rules and you smoke a cigarette, you're going to die, bro, because you're not meant to breathe in smoke but oxygen, Right? But so often we think living implies breaking the rules when in fact it's the opposite. You break the rules, there's going to be consequences. And all we're doing is we're shepherding people and saying, listen, life works best when you keep this. Life, you don't usually have to drink a six-pack and pop an Ambien to get to sleep at night when you try to bring your life in conformity with this. It's going to work better for you, bro. I promise. You're not going to have the relational drama in your daily week if you get into this and you try to live by its precepts. Because the law brings freedom. James 1 says this, the law of God, when you stare into it and you strive to keep it, the law brings freedom. God didn't give you this to jam you up and rob you of freedom. He gave you the Bible to free you up. To free you up. Now this is vital to, to grasp because if we, don't, if we don't even ourselves as Christians view the law that way, if you kind of view the law as like a Debbie Downer, it's like God's up in heaven going, and then do this, and then do this, and then after dinner do that. You know, if we view it that way, we're going to end up having a negative view of God's law. And what will happen is we will, we will start to see God as an authoritarian dictator with a Napoleon complex, right? Who basically is so insecure that he has to keep a bunch of little minions under his thumb. We'll start to view God's law that way. And it won't be long. When you start heading down that path of viewing God that way as an insecure God in heaven who wants to squash us and keep us under his thumb, when you start viewing God that way, it's only a short hop before fear-based obedience leads to father-loathing rebellion. That wasn't my quote. That was J.D. Greer. It's only a matter of time before fear-based obedience leads to father-rejecting rebellion. Because here's the deal. If you, if you view God as like so insecure, he's giving us a bunch of rules, you're going to fall into this thing called, it's called legalism. It's basically, you know, I do this, I scratch God's back, he scratches mine, God takes care of me because I'm so good. When you fall into this legalistic mindset and you view God that way, legalism always produces atheism. It's without exception. I've seen it a million times. You find someone that's way off the reservation and wants nothing to do with God, just ask them how they grew up and I guarantee they're going to say Catholic or really, really independent fundamentalist Baptist. If you're visiting, I'm sorry, but it's true, right? If you're in a really legalistic system, it's going to come back and bite you, your family, and your kids every single time. You cannot break the laws of the universe and not bear the consequences, says Jordan Peterson. So if you view God that way, it's going to backfire. And so we have to show people how, listen, the law of God, bro, this is so good for you. You want to get this in you. You, you don't listen. You got Dr. Phil, you got Oprah. Listen, bro, have you checked this out, though? Because I'm telling you right now, this works 100% of the time. But since a lot of people grew up in the whole fear, 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 fear-based method, they got to 18, 19, they went to college in Alaska, and they're like, I'm done, bro. You call up there, how's it going? What church are you in? I ain't going to church, mom. I ain't going. I'm done with Jesus. Because they saw Jesus as the divine lawgiver in heaven. Instead of the loving Savior who says, this is how life works best.
and they were never taught to see the beauty of God's law. You know, there's a popular comedian right now. His name's Pete Holmes. I don't know if you've heard of Pete. He's been on HBO, Comedy Central. He's got a really, really neat story. He grew up in a Christian home. Uh, he was actually, I think, a missionary for like a few years. One of those kind of Christian homes. Totally sold out. Um, taught the Bible from a young age. But his upbringing was more of that like fear-based model. Like you obey God because God's going to get you if not, you know. And they wore t-shirts in the family. Jesus is coming, look busy, you know. And everyone's really, you know, everyone's really stressed out and on edge and anxious. So anyway, he, eventually he falls away from God, right? He falls away from, from who he thought was God, at least. And uh, he starts doing stand-up comedy. And so he's become this really secular person, an atheistic person. And what's interesting is that Pete Holmes found his way back to God in a very interesting way. I've never read a testimony like this before in my life, never. This guy found his way back to God through the testimony of his atheistic friends. This is what I mean. Uh, Pete Holmes was traveling, you know, they're doing stand-up comedy, he's traveling with these two other comics, they're both atheists, devout atheists, and they're inside a hotel, and it's one of those hotels that has like a mini-mart inside, and they, they got the M&Ms and the checks Mix, and everything's like $27, you know, for like a bag of pretzels, you, you know, these little mini-marts. They got everything there, bro, but you're going to pay through the nose. So they're like shopping, and the lady leaves the register and goes to the restroom. And so Pete and his two friends are in this, this mini-mart by themselves, and it's late at night, there's nobody around. And so Pete, who's this newfound atheist, he's like, you know what? Hey, guys, he goes, there's nobody here. He goes, let's start grabbing stuff. And one of his atheist friends says, dude, no way, man. We're not taking stuff. And, the, and Pete goes, why? Why? why what? If, if we die and it's lights out, party's over, and there's no big man up there, why not take stuff? Because I want some peanut M&Ms and I'm hungry. And one of his buddies rebuked him. One of his atheistic but he said this, he said, because, man, the reason we shouldn't take stuff isn't because we're doing it for some God up in heaven who's mad at you when you steal M&Ms. We're doing it for one another. We're doing it so the woman who's not at the counter right now doesn't get fired when they count the cash in the M&Ms later this week. And Pete said that hit him like a ton of bricks. His atheistic friend rebuking him, and he said this, that experience hit me hard and really changed the way I thought about God and religion because I started to see that you didn't need a fear-based model to be beautifully compassionate and kind to other people. Are you guys on the wavelength this morning? Do you feel it? Just say amen if you do. Just let me know that you're there. Let me know the coffee is, is, is flowing. You guys are pretty far back there. Maybe you're listening in, right? But for the first time in his life, Pete Holmes, he saw the beauty and the kindness and the compassion of God's law. Isn't that rad to think about? So you don't obey primarily because God's going to squash you. You obey because obedience is human. Obeying is human, and God's law is intended for human flourishing. We've, we've got to feed the sheep of this world, those green pastures. So that's the first thing. We feed them the beauty of God's law. Secondly, we have to share with them the good news, the gospel. You know, the law of God is amazing. It's beautiful. But a lot of people think, in fact, I would say probably the majority of people in this culture think the way that you get to heaven, even church people think this, the way you get to heaven is this. You start going to church and then God's patient with you while you get your act together. 
you kind of go on probation. You get out of prison, and then it's kind of like you're on probation. And if you kind of keep your act you know, straight and narrow, then God will take you to heaven one day. And so it's sort of like, you know, Jesus paid it all, but I'm leaving the tip. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to bail him out. And so they kind of view the gospel as like Jesus plus your good life and your good works after you start going to church. Instead of Jesus paid it all. And so we have to clarify in their heart and minds, listen, yeah, you obey because obeying is human, but obedience is never going to get you to heaven. It's never going to earn for you the way to heaven. Romans 3 says, people are not saved by law-keeping, right? They're not saved by obedience, but by faith in Christ and Christ alone. We've got to clarify that in people's minds. There's a lot of people out there today that are saying things like, yeah, you, you believe in Jesus, but when you die and you stand before God, he's going to look at all your works and then decide whether or not he's going to let you into heaven. We've got to be so, so very careful. And we've got to point out that if you're here this morning, no matter what kind of church you grew up in, no matter where you're at right now, your life can be saved and secure from the wrath of God, the judgment for eternity, it can be saved and secure as easily and as simply as putting your faith in Jesus. Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus removed any impediment between us and him. Removed all the obstacles, died for them. Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live and he died the death you should have died so that you could simply put your faith in his finished work and you'd be saved. You'd be saved. And honestly, God cares more that you put your faith in Jesus than you search this book and learn all the laws and to straighten your life up and get a better cushy situation down here. God cares first and foremost for your soul. And as a byproduct, we open this up and dig into it. And so that's where it starts. We've got to feed them the green pastures and so show them not only the beauty of God's law, but also reminding them, you can't keep this enough to make God happy with you. You must be perfect, Jesus said. And that only comes through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. So first of all, we've got to open the scriptures up. We've got to show people the law, the gospel, and give them green pastures to feed upon when they come in here. Sound teaching and doctrine, right? And then secondly, we should provide, the church should provide still waters where the sick sheep of this world can come in and feel safe to lie down and rest, right? By the way, none of these photos are from Florida. None of them are, you've seen, right? These were all taken someplace else. The church should be a place of still, still waters, just very serene. In other words, the church should be a truly drama-free environment. And so we need to cultivate this environment where people can come in and feel safe enough to lay down and to see their lives transformed over time. And listen, this is very tough for us. This is the harder part of our calling because everyone likes to preach. Everyone likes to be a prophet. Being a prophet and standing on a street corner with a bullhorn and yelling at people God's law or yelling at them the gospel or whatever it is, that's easy. That's very easy. But being patient with people who are going to break your heart over and over and over and over again and continually showing them grace when they tread upon your kindness and take advantage of you while they're figuring their life out, that's a lot harder to do. It's easy to keep a church buttoned up. It's easy to drive people off that are problem people because they suck the very life out of you and eventually you say, get out of here, you're not committed enough. That's easy to do. Being a prophet is easy. Preaching to people is easy. The much harder part of a church is to be a shepherd because being a shepherd takes sacrifice. 
bearing with people patiently while you're waiting for God to get a hold and transform their hearts while they break your heart over and over and over again. That's tough. That is so very difficult to do as a church. And so I think naturally we, we get the feeding part. We, we get the teaching the world, the Bible, the part. We kind of like that. It keeps us in control. But the shepherding part of providing the still waters, that takes death. <laughs> that is tough. But the church is called to be a place that provides the sheep of this world, green pastures and still waters. And there should be people, if you're a faithful church, there should be people in your church who are in process, who are thinking through the demands of Jesus Christ. This has to be a place where people feel comfortable enough to come in here, whether they're skeptics, whether they're seekers, whether they're sinners, whether they're even unrepentant. They need to have an environment where they're coming in here and they're able to, to sit down and soak in the demands of Christ. And if, if, you, if you live your Christian life, if you run your family, if you did like I did, if you run your church as this environment that's heavily like performance-oriented and you run everybody off except for the most committed and the most pure, that is actually a sign of bad shepherding. Listen to Ezekiel 34. This is where God describes what false shepherds look like. Listen to this. I really want you to think about this because this is going to sound so backwards to us that think about you know, purifying the church and kicking everybody out. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat, but you do not feed the sheep? Listen to this. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up, and the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there's no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. And so my sheep were scattered. Notice God says, my sheep were scattered. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Listen, when we drive off and thin the herd except for the most holy and the most committed, God gets very angry. He gets very angry at that. And listen, churches always move in one of two directions, always. Either the legalists and the Bible thumpers gain the ascendancy in a church and they gain all the positions of authority, and they drive off everybody except for the most holy and most committed until there's eight people left in the church, and they all hate each other, right? Or the leadership of that church stands up to the legalists and says, not in here, cowboy. And they provide a safe place so that wounded sinners don't get jerked around. They make the church a safe place where people come in and they don't feel judged. They don't get the stink eye from the residential Pharisee, right? Because of the way they're dressed or the way that their life is going. In other words, the church is supposed to be a place where people can belong before they believe. Does that make sense? The, the, to have a church that provides still waters, they have to feel safe enough to come and say, you know what, I love going there. I love it. I can't tell you why. I'm not a religious person, but I love going there. I literally feel like heaven has been peeled down and pulled down to earth, and I just feel so accommodated and loved there. I feel like 
people must have felt when they were around Jesus. That should be the culture of a church. When people leave here and you talk about culture, the voice that's talking to you when there's nobody talking to you, the echo that people should have in their hearts when they leave a church or a home group or an encounter with a Christian family, should, they should walk away saying, man, I've never been so affirmed. I've never been so loved. They've never affirmed my lifestyle the way it is, but they love me where I'm at. They provided me some guidance from the Word of God saying, listen, I've got some answers here that would blow your stinking mind. People should walk away experiencing that kind of culture. And, I, and friends, I, I, when I look at the religious landscape in America, we're, we're in a tough way. The majority of people today, the unevangelized part of our culture are unchurched or de-churched people. A de-churched person, as I said before, it's a person who grew up in church and they got to 18, 19, 20 and they said, I'm done, I'm through. And you look back at our Christian culture, you look back at the American culture, you see a lot of confusion about what religion even is, what Christianity is. You see arguments over cabbage patch dolls and the length of a man's hair. You see all this legalism. And now you're seeing a lot of male chauvinism coming out that we've seen in the church. You see all this wreckage in the church, racism, all this stuff. And so today people think, well, the way you get them back is you have a really blown and going church. You do church in a box. You go on Amazon, you order church in a box, comes to your door, open it up, do these 10 things, and your church is going to grow. I don't think that's going to last, friends. I think what people are looking for is a church where they come in, and they're actually going to experience heaven in that church. There's a culture in that church, maybe 10 people, maybe 10,000. But when they come in, they experience heaven. There's something so transcendent at this church. They don't waffle over the hard things. They don't waffle over sin. They're living pure lives. They're not trying to be so hip that they're relevant. No, they love Jesus, but they love me too, which is crazy. I don't get it. I thought people that loved Jesus hated me. That's what's going to be counterintuitive. That's going to be the gospel witness in this next generation. And yet our default mode, friend, my default mode, this is autobiographical up in here this morning. I confess to you, my default mode is to be a Pharisee. That was my mistake with Bill and Sally. I was hammering them to change their life overnight. There wasn't any room or space to grow. There wasn't any time of transition. And so often in the past, I look back, and I've expected people to change so fast before I've cut them off. And I think, especially in our culture today, friends, we have to be patient and long-suffering because we have to be a place of still waters as people rethink their life. This has to be a safe place where people can come and rethink their life because this is not Mayberry anymore. This is not Little House on the Prairie where everyone's saved, even the animals are saved and the Christians, right? Little House on the Prairie, everyone's a Christian, right? Everyone goes to church. This is not Little House on the Prairie. This is 2018. In fact, last year, Wallet Hub did a, a survey. This blew my mind. They surveyed... And they ranked the largest cities in America by which ones were the most sinful. And they came up with the 150 largest cities, most sinful cities in the U.S., right? Orlando was ranked number four. Oh, yeah. And there was all kinds of categories like, you know, violent crime, rape, murder, gambling, you know, gentlemen's clubs, which is an oxymoron. Ain't no gentleman up in that club, right? There ain't no such thing as a gentleman's club. You've never seen one in your life. Um, Orlando is four. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you, listen, we're right down the road. The people that are going to come visit here, believe it or not, are not from Mayberry, right? They have spent the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years living in patterns 
that probably aren't going to line up a whole lot with this. And the, the question is this, how much rope are you going to give them? How patient are you going to be with them? I just started surf fishing recently. I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but I know this. You better put some drag on your line, bro, because if a big fish comes in and you got that sucker so tight, he's going to snap it the moment he gets on your line if you don't give him some room to run. The people that are going to visit and walk through these doors, they, 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 are, probably, they are probably going to have lifestyles and, 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 and the way that they even, they think about their money and everything, it's probably going to look absolutely 180 degrees different from the way that we view it as believers of Jesus Christ, as Christians. And it's, it's going to be really, really silly if we expect people to drop their entire worldview overnight because we did a four-part sermon series on not living together, whatever it is, it's going to be absolutely ridiculous. And I know this, people don't change overnight. They don't. Everybody in here should say amen. Especially every married couple should say amen. Especially anyone with kids should say amen. People don't change overnight. We keep doing the same stupid things over and over again, even as believers. People don't change. You know, you can have your formula all you want. We do eight counseling meetings normally. Yeah, listen, by the eighth one, they're just scratching the surface, bro. They ain't coming to the end. Like, thank you. Uh, We're blessed and highly favored now. That ain't going to happen, bro. A counseling means is just putting a deposit down, okay? Because people don't change overnight. Everybody's got a blind spot in one area and everybody can see it but them. Everybody has one. Everybody. Nobody's an example or an exemption to that. L- let me give you a practical example, okay, from the Bible. Let's say you're visiting a church, okay? Let's say you're visiting this church. And, uh, you know, you've been coming for like six months or whatever. You're like, I, I kind of like this church. This is really cool. There's people here are loving. And then this new family joins, right? And this new family, the dad is like sold out. He's, he's, he's a Bible beaver, bro. He's like bleeding scripture. You cut the guy, he bleeds scripture everywhere, right? He's always telling, in my quiet time, this. He's always talking about the Bible and, and Christianity. This guy stays late. He stacks chairs after service. He's sold out. Gives his money faithfully. You know that because he tells you. You know what I'm saying? Let's see. Let, let's say you see this new family, right? This guy seems sold out. But you've noticed this guy has a problem with, uh, with racist comments. Let, let's say you know this guy and he posts stuff on Facebook about how Middle Eastern people are all terrorists. And he jokes about it on Facebook. If people have too dark a skin. And so one day after church, you know, there's a bunch of people going to Zaxby's and, um, you know, this guy and his family are going to go to Zaxby's with this huge group of people. But, but, Let's say this Middle Eastern couple is visiting that Sunday. And let's say this Middle Eastern couple says, hey, we'd like to go to Zaxby's too. And so they say, you know, this group says, oh, yeah, come with us. And this guy says, uh, me and my family are not going to Zaxby's today. We got to go home. We have something come up. And let's say you press him and you're like, hey, hey, dude, well, wh- why are you going to go home now? I thought you were going to Zaxby's. And what, if, what would you do if he said to you, me and my family are not hanging around people like that because they're trouble. They're all terrorists. They're all linked to a terrorist. They're all related to a terrorist. And so me and my family are not going to eat with people like that because we know what kind of people they are. If that happened, and then you sat down with that brother, let's say the next week, and you said, you know what, God just really wants me to talk to you about this. this I'm, really, I'm really concerned about your heart. I'm really concerned about the way you talk about people that don't look like you. You know, how, how did you get saved? How did you come to know the Lord? 
And he says to you this. He says, you know what? Jesus Christ personally led me to Jesus. He did. He was there. He said, come to me. And I came to him. And then he discipled me for three and a half years. I actually backpacked with him all over Palestine. We did evangelism, mission trips. We gave Bibles away. It was awesome, you know. Power team was there, the whole deal. And uh, Jesus then, when he died, personally commissioned me to preach the gospel to the whole world. Imagine he opens up that way when you talk to him. You think to yourself this. This guy's either crazy, right? He's either high on bath salts, right? Or he's delusional. He's got some kind of mental instability because it's impossible for a guy to spend that much time, three and a half years, around Jesus, to be discipled by Jesus, to be saved by Jesus. Jesus is not even here. It'd be impossible for him to have that much encounter with Jesus and still be blinded by racism. Here's the deal. When you read through the New Testament, that's Peter's testimony. The person I just described is the Apostle Peter. When you read through the New Testament, you read Acts 10, 11, 15, Galatians 2, you see Peter as a man who is plagued by deep, deep racism. I mean, in the book of Acts, they weren't even sure that you get to Acts 15, you're already almost halfway through the book. They're not even sure Gentiles can be saved. You're like, hey, should we let the people in that don't look like us or not? What did Jesus say about that again? You know, it's like they're confused about who can be saved and who can and who has to adopt what culture. And that's Peter. That's For three and a half years, Peter prayed with Jesus, wept with Jesus, lived with Jesus, and yet he's got the Holy Spirit all this time with Jesus. It's like he never was with Jesus at all. He's still so racist. I read that and I'm reminded, you know what? People don't change overnight. Apostles don't change overnight. Everybody's got a blind spot in one area and everyone can see it but them. And if Christians, if Christians who lived with Jesus and who have the Holy Spirit and who were apostles, who actually wrote the Holy Scripture, still manage to struggle with racism as all get out, what does that say about the person who just started coming to church for the first time in 20 years and whose lifestyle probably doesn't look the way that you'd hoped? It says this to me. It says, you've got to take the long view, bro. You've got to take the long view. And friends, God has given us a huge mission field. Deltona, biggest city in Volusia County, 80,000 people. And I know we just talked about spiritual warfare here. And I know we think about revival. We think about what's it going to take. Let's remove Satan for a second from the equation. I would say this. The biggest hurdle to revival is not Satan. When we take him out of the equation, let's say what's the second biggest? Us. We're the biggest hindrance to revival. We've got to provide a place of green pastures and still waters. That's our calling as a church. And so my prayer for my church and for this church is that this will be a place where the wayward, the beady-eyed, scabby sheep of this world would come in here and feel safe enough to lay down and to rest and to find nourishment for their souls. So much so that they would say like David did in verse 6 of Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. Whenever I'm in that church, I tell you what, it's going to follow me all the days I'm there and that's why I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I ain't going to want to leave because I feel so loved and accepted. And you know what? And they want what's best for me. Even when it steps on my toes, they ain't giving up on me. They're not drawing a line in the sand and saying, change tonight or else. No, they're patient and they love me. May this church be known as a church.
that provides green pastures and still waters. Let's pray.